Let's let's start. Would anybody does anybody have anybody that you would like to include in our prayers tonight? Father and Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of this day, for the gift of yourself, um, the great trust that you place in us to give us the sacraments, um, offer your presence to us all the time. Um, the world doesn't know you, or so many don't. We do. Um, a great gift, a great burden. Strengthen us with your grace that we can take care of it, um, the holiness that you call us to. Um, um, strengthen in our efforts to learn to deny ourselves, put ourselves away, so that we can love the way that you do. Um, um, I ask for a blessing for all those silent prayers that people tonight carry within them. For Maddie, um, um, we made a prayer last week that her heart quiet, whatever it is that makes her anxious. Um, draw her closer to you, help her to learn to let go, to trust, to quiet her heart. Um, let that be so for all of us. Um, and we offer thanksgiving in our family for um, so many of the kids who are returning home from travels for their safety. I ask a blessing on all that we're doing with this reading, particularly um, for some of the mysteries that I think we're entering into. Um, um, help them to deepen our sense of you and your presence in the world, to, to know with real convictions that there's nowhere we can go where you're not. You, you created it. You're everywhere. Um, help open our eyes um, so that we can see you there. Um, and grow in the love that comes from seeing your goodness um, um, so much around us. We offer all of these prayers, Christ, in your name, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, Tonight I want to tackle this, this question that I put to you. I mean, I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm committing myself to doing this for the next few weeks. And I'm doing it with some reservations because I don't know if this isn't too abstract from you guys. I would be really grateful to hear from you guys because um, I don't know that I'm not in the third heaven of abstraction and just <laughs> leaving you guys behind. Well, I, I feel that way really seriously. Um, this notion, the question that I put to you last week, can we find Christ in the writing itself of Faulkner? And by extension, can we find him in anything that we do? You know, we're so used to identifying Christ with a person. I said this before, um, so I'm repeating it, but I'm glad to keep coming back to this. 
It's easy for us to see Christ in people, or easier. Christ was a person. He is, he is God. Um, he is the truth. He's a person. Truth isn't an abstraction in our faith, right? It's not, it's not a... It's, St. Thomas would say it's the conformity of the mind with things. It's, and, and I believe that. I mean, the intellect is the means of arriving at truth. But we also believe that the ultimate source of that truth is Christ. It's a person. So truth itself, what our, our minds grasp, is a person. But he's the, thanks, he's the, he's also the means of creation. And we've seen over and over again that the, that the, um, Creator is always present in his creation in some way. So Faulkner is present in his writings just as Shakespeare is in his, Homer in his, Dante in his. When we pick up the Divine Comedy, there's not a mis- nobody can have a mistake going through it for no purgatorio, perdiso. It's Dante. He leaves his mark everywhere. If you read a Shakespeare play, you know it's Shakespeare. If you read a Jane Austen novel, you can't mistake it, it's her. If you read a Dostoevsky novel, it's his. The creator is present in his work. Something of his spirit passes into the work. So the question that I was putting to you, um, because we've entered the modern world where, um, it, it, I mean, for the most part, it's, we're in a post-Christian world. Most people believe, or lots of people believe, God is dead. Um, so to me, there's a greater challenge to see if we can't find him, particularly in the works that I, I mean, I, I hope we're finding them. Otherwise, I'm not not sure that I'm doing what I should be doing here. Um, so I want to keep that alive. Um, I want to go back. We're going to start with the um, wreck of the Dutchland again, because what's at the center of that is Hopkins' writing. And during the act of writing, um, he the crisis that he's experiencing comes to an intense moment while he's writing. I hope the question that I'm raising, (laughs) I hope I can get it out of the third heaven of abstractions, I don't know what else to call it, down to earth in this sense. I hope that for everybody, this becomes an incentive for everybody to look at what they do, all of us, what we all do, in the way that we express ourselves. When we use words, when we use words, are the words that we're using giving expression to Christ at any point during the day? Is what we're saying um, moving us closer to Him or farther away? Um, in our actions, our words, at work, and I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can expand this a little bit. If the claim that I'm making is that, or the question that I'm asking is that. Is Christ present in the way that Faulkner writes? Because I've already suggested, you know, if you took a couple like Lucas and Molly in Fire in the Heart, if you took a couple like that and put it in a Hollywood movie, you know that the likelihood is that it would end cynically. They would separate and that would be it, or one of them would be dead and the curtain would fall in. Or it would end sentimentally. Everything would be nice and sweet, and that isn't the way it ends. And yet I, my sense is, I, I'm speaking for myself, maybe not everybody here, but I don't think we can put down the fire in the hearth without feeling a satisfaction that it was a well-written story and we're glad for what happens. We're glad for Lucas and Molly to be back together. It's not going to be happy. It's not a Hollywood happy, you know, um, forever, what's the phrase happy I'm looking for? Ever. Happy ever. 
Happily ever after. Happily ever after. Yeah, it's not that. But I don't think any of us can look at that and think, how good. You know? I mean, that's what we're left with. Um, good for him, good for her. Um, the, the story ends with Lucas bringing the machine back and giving it to Edmonds and saying, I'm done with it. Um, it's not a, a great flashy ending. There's no CG tsunamis washing over a great city. You know, it's a man and woman coming through a, a painful ordeal. And it, it doesn't have all the flash, but I, it seems to me, anybody reading that would say, our hearts would be glad. Good for him, good for her. So the question that I'm raising is, in his writing, is there something about the way he writes that makes us aware of Christ? And if we extend that out in our own lives, um, when we look at what we say, the words that we use, particularly with each other, are the words that we're using bringing us closer to Christ or moving us farther away? Um, what we say, what we do. By extension, that means at work. In the work that we do, because, you know, the poetry we've been reading is everything speaks. There's nothing in creation that doesn't speak. The, the first poem is going to go to that today. Everything speaks. Everything has, everything has a voice. If you're working in a hospital and working with computers or machines, is what you're doing helping those, that equipment, machinery, give the very best that it can give? so that you're always doing something to produce a good. Is the work that you're doing bringing Christ to... You know? I didn't start out with this because that is almost too catechetical for me personally because <laughs> my, my interest is in literature, but it seems to me we, we could be asking these questions. It's my way of trying to enlarge the context so that it doesn't seem so narrowly literary, you know? Because um, I take this very seriously. What Faulkner's doing I think is remarkable. Anyway, I'd like to keep that question open. What I'm going to do is, um, when we start, I'm going to, I want to go back to a Hopkins poem to prepare for the wreck, to pick up where we left off last week in the wreck of the Dutchland. And then I want to read from a psalm, and then I want to read from Jacques Maritain before we start um, Pantaloon in Black. Because all of that is by way of setting up what Faulkner's doing with Ryder, this black guy who almost cannot bear the death of his wife. It so overwhelms him, it so crushes him, that he almost can't handle it. And you know it happens, um, and most especially because he's black. He's hung at the end. He's executed by the Birdsong family. Um, and we're in a strange position, because unlike the sheriff and his wife, who, who clearly don't know a lot about Ryder, what we know, we can feel things they can't. He's helped us to get into that man's life so that we can feel things towards him they can't. So literature is doing something other things can't. I mean, that's where we're going. But, but I want to put that in a larger perspective just by raising that question. Is what Faulkner's doing with his writing in some ways revealing Christ, the word, the logos, at work um, in what he's doing? Okay. If this is brief, because if it's a longer question, I want to get... It could be. I just wanted to. Okay. The question you asked us to think about is, do we find Christ in things around us every day? Right. Or something like that. Yeah. Is, is that, I mean, is that, is that the question you're asking? Yes. Yeah, that's the larger question. It, it's specifically addressed to the, yeah, to the writing, because that's what we're focused on. 
I want to put it in a larger context so it doesn't seem so mysterious or just limited to literature. But I don't find that mysterious, and I'm puzzled because it's. I'm afraid I don't understand because it seems so simple to me, which means I probably don't understand it. So that's why I'm asking the question because I was always brought up that that's yeah. just the way you think about things. Yeah. So. So am I missing something? I don't That's think what I'm so. No, Mark, you're not. No, I, I think uh, I'm raising it because I'm. I don't want to assume that it's true, and I don't know that it is for everybody. So I'm raising it okay, okay. I was just because I don't I know. I can't assume that. And the other thing that I would say, even if we've been raised to think that way, I'm not sure that we've ever been sufficiently helped to feel that way. And that is not a small thing for me, as you know. Because it, you already know for me, at least in our reading, we've been getting it again and again and again. One of the great disorders of our time is that we're too encouraged to live in our heads and ideas. That our hearts don't go out. Um, that's a much, much harder. Love is a much harder thing than knowing about love. So, Okay, um, I want to I I go back to Wreck of the Deutschland. But to put this in a context, I want to go back and reread the Kingfisher Catch Fire quote. Remember that? That's you, if you don't have it, don't worry about it. Kingfisher's Catch Fire is on the opposite side of the wind hover. So if you've got that handy, you can read it. But don't worry about it. Just listen. As a matter of fact, don't even don't even look for it. Just listen. Um, remember, this is the poem, like the wind hover, in which Hopkins is finding Christ all around him. In the wind hover, he saw him in the wind hover. Remember that moment when he hovers and masters the wind? Um, um, brute beauty and valor in act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. With the paradox in that word, that it means buckle, bring all things together, but it also means buckling, collapse. But in that moment when the wind hover masters the air, there's a moment when he has a mastery and then suddenly it's like his wings collapse. He can only do it for a moment. And in that instant, Hopkins is intimating a participation in the crucifixion. And he sees that, remember, in the farmer. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovely or more dangerous, oh my chevalier. He looks at the bird and he sees something of Christ. Oh my chevalier. No wonder of it. He says, no wonder in this Sheer plod makes plow down and shine. A farmer working the earth will produce this glowing, takes that mud, you know, after you work it, and produces this, this um, radiance that, that comes out from the um, refined clay when it turns to silk. Um, sheer plod makes plow down and shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, to Christ, who else, ah, my dear. Fall galled themselves and gashed gold vermilion. So he's now look, contemplating a fire at that moment when the rage settles and it goes to the coals, you know, when the, when the wood burns down into the coals and there's that moment when the fire gives off that vermilion radiance. It's a beauty, it's, it's, it's so luminous. It's not, like the ra it's not like that moment when the fire is so great that you can't see the radiance. You know, the fire's just so blatantly there. It's when it burns down and the coals are radiating this vermilion color. And it's in the death of those coals when it's going out and it produces that radiant light that once again he finds Christ. So there's nothing in creation, if we have the eyes to see it, that doesn't show Christ. Okay. 
this is a long way around of <laughs> I may be off base here. I mean, maybe I, maybe I should just assume that everybody knows, but I, I can't assume that because that, that hasn't been my own experiences. My own experience is that most of us are blind, even if we think we know. Our hearts don't always open on things the way Christ has asked them to. So, Okay, Hopkins as Kingfisher's Catch Fire. <clears throat> He's doing the same thing here, except the focus of the poem is that each thing has a self, and that self speaks. Nothing in creation. And this is St. Thomas. And here's the problem. We, we tend to look at things in terms of a subject-object dichotomy. We objectify everything. That's particularly true of the sciences. Because sciences by nature abstract. They abstract concrete things so that we get to ideas. That's the nature of science. Um, Hopkins is reminding us that each thing is, not, is only an object to the mind objectifying it. That long before the mind ever gets to it, each thing is its own subject. It's a thing in itself. When Suzanne plants the garden, when she brings flowers into the house, there's not a question in my mind that she's closer to the nature of that flower in the way that she attends to it than somebody who just looks at it as an object. I think women are far more ready, St. Thomas would call it knowledge by connaturality, by sympathy, that there's this empathetic, this sympathetic movement, and it's a kind of knowing. You become one with the thing. The mind doesn't objectify it. Well, it does partly, but you, you come closer to being one with that thing. Yeah? Um, <clears throat> so in Kingfishers, he's looking at these things and seeing that each one speaks itself. And he's rendering that in poetry so that we can sense that selfhood in each thing. It's the Kingfisher, the dragon, the, the rocks going down the well are tumbling their name. Rocks. I mean, either you say there's something to what he's saying or this poet is nuts, because nobody thinks that way. A rock speaks, are you kidding? Um, so each thing has itself, okay? This is getting to the wreck of the Dutch land and finally fuck Rocks speak to me, Bob. <laughs> As kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, that's their identity. That's who they are. You know, the, you know that kingfisher is a, the, the, the fish when they can jump out of it. It's like it catches the light in that moment and, and it stands out in that moment. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, you can hear it, that on a moment, you, you can hear the sound, you can hear the rock speaking itself, right? The onomatopoeia. You all know that when we're together, I hope. As, tumbered, as tumbled over rim in roundy well stones ring, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Remember the, the tongue, that's, that's what the wrapper is called in a bell, it's a tongue, and when it hits the sound or the sides, it rings. But it's called a tongue, and Hopkins is playing with that. Each hung bell's bow Bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Even there, the alliteration. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selves, goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me. 
for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Are we showing Christ in our faces, in what we do with each other, to the Father? That's what Christ did. We're asked to do the same. Can we see Christ in things around us? Not just, not just people, kingfisher, a dragonfly, a stone going down a well, you know, whatever it is. Okay, so the wreck of the Ditchland. Let's go back to that now and pick it up. I'm going to just touch on some of the lines in the first, what did we do, the first six, six. first six stanzas? Six, yeah, we started seven, but first six or seven stanzas. Um, remember in the opening stanzas, he's expressing something of a personal crisis. Um, he's acknowledging God's greatness and then confesses his weakness and his terror, his dread of God because God so fashioned him but he's aware of his sins and the danger that his sins puts him in that he could lose God. Um, so in the, in the first stanza, thou mastering me God giver of breath and bread the world's strand. So he is the world's strand. He is the sway of the sea. He measured them. He, con he made them. He's in control of them. Behind this remember the, the, the great theme at the heart of the wreck of the Deutschland is the paradox of suffering. It's the paradox and the mystery of suffering. The mystery of it. If God has control of everything, if he mastered everything, and he's a good God, how could he, how in the world can he allow suffering, particularly where it's undeserved? The nuns did nothing to deserve going down. They were forced out of the convent, had to leave, and in the channel crossing they perished. So at the heart of this is this question that he's asking, how do we, how do we account for, how do we understand suffering in the world? So particularly, God is the world's strand, he's the sway of the sea, there's nothing he doesn't control, Lord of the living and the dead, thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh. And after it almost unmade, what with dread thy doing? And dost thou touch me afresh? Over and over, I feel thy finger and find thee. Touched. And he acknowledges, he, as, as a priest, he committed himself. He said yes to God. I did say yes, O oh, at lightning and lashed rod. Thou heardest me truer than tongues confess. Thy terror, O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls alter an hour. You can picture the chapel the swoon of the heart, how deeply he would have felt the moment of committing himself to Christ. The frown of his face before me, the hurl of hell behind, where, where was a, where was a place? I whirled out wings that spell, he was ecstatic, and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. He flees to Christ in the Eucharist, in the host, he takes refuge there. My heart but you were dove-winged, I can tell, Carrier witted, I am bold to boast, to flash from the flame to the flame then, tower from the grace to the grace. 
um, it's consoling to know that he could find strength in Christ. And like somebody taking wings to meet the Holy Spirit with wings, Christ, the Spirit of Christ, he pictures himself doing that. But set off against that is his awareness of his own sin. I am soft sif in an hourglass at the wall fast. Remember, in an hourglass, everything's firm at the edge. The walls hold it in. When you get to the center, the grains fall. I mean, they just pull each other down. Those of us who know our sins know that sometimes we commit them. It's like an incontinence. It's the weakness overtakes us, and we do something we shouldn't. We know we shouldn't do it, so do it. I am soft sift in an hourglass at the wall, fast, but mind with emotion adrift, and it crowds and it combs to the fall. I steady as a water in a well to a poise. He goes on. Um, he speaks of Christ's gift. I kiss my hand to the stars. He acknowledges the beauty. Um, his mystery must be in stress. He, he knows that everything in creation, is what his word for it is in stress. That there's nothing in creation that isn't in stress, put there from the energy of God. It's like God holds it in creation. It's one of his most important words, in stress. Everything in creation is in stress. It's God holding it there. The other important word he calls in scape. In stress, the power with which God holds something in creation, in scape, the pattern of the beauty of it. It can be a eucalyptus leaf, it can be a cloud, it can be a rose or a lily. Each thing in creation has its own power, its own beauty. His mystery must be in stress, stressed. He's got to do that in his poetry. Because there's a made thing like the made things that God makes, because he's trying to imitate God, he's got, he's got to write a poetry that will, that will use words in such a way that people will feel things stressed in it. Listen to this. I caught this morning morning's minion, kingdom of Daylot's dauphin, dappled Don Drawn Falcon, in his riding of the roly level, boom, 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 boom. I mean, that's a stressing pattern. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's trying to help us to feel the stress of that bird holding itself in its existence. His mystery must be in stressed, stressed. For I greet him the days I meet him and bless him when I understand. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven, if you know this, swings the stroke dealt. Stroke in a stressed the stars and storms deliver. That guilt is hushed by, hearts are flushed by and melt, but it rides time like riding a river, and hear the faithful waver, the faithless fable and miss. We make up all these things to explain God's presence in the world, but we fable, we're actually missing, we're telling these tales, or there's something we're not seeing. What are we not seeing? Now I'm gonna pick up here, I'm not gonna make any more comments, I'm gonna read the next four stanzas to end the first part and to just leave it. Um, what, in, what has increased this stress in the world that, that explains how everything is held in existence? It's Christ entering the world. It's God actually entering the world because what he did then was take on our sins and bring a love into it and ask us to follow it. It dates from day of his going in Galilee, warm laid grave of a womb life gray, manger maiden's knee, the dense and driven passion, and frightful sweat, 
Thence the discharge of it, there its swelling to be, though felt before, though in high flood yet, what none would have known of it, only the heart being hard at bay. It's only in anguish when we're brought to our knees that we really can say we know it. That, that is know it in the heart. Though felt before, though in high flood yet, what none would have known of it, only the heart, being hard at bay, is out with it. Oh, we lashed with the best or worst word last, how a lush kept plush capped slew will mouth to flesh burst. It's like putting a plum in our mouth when it's ripe, and you know how it gushes. Um, lush kept plush capped slew will mouth to flesh burst gush. Flush the man, the bean with it, sour or sweet, brim in a flash full, hither then, last or first, to hero of Calvary Christ's feet. Never ask if meaning it, wanting it, warned of it, men go. That image of the fruit flushing, I think, is meant to be an image of the heart crushing. I mean, because what he's saying, I think, I think, is that it's only when that, it's not in the head, it's when the heart gets crushed, when we're most in humility that we're closest to Christ in those moments of suffering, those intense moments of suffering. Be adored among men, God, three-numbered form. Ring thy rebel dogged in den, man's malice with wrecking and storm. Right? Let all of us men be beaten up so that we come to our knees in this suffering, so that we come to the cross. Man's malice with wrecking and storm, beyond saying sweet, past telling of tongue, thou art lightning and love, I found it a winter and warm. All these paradoxes, these opposites coming together in Christ. Father and fonder of heart, thou hast rung. Hast thy dark descending and most art merciful then. With an anvil ding and with fire in him, Forge thy will through Christ. Forge thy will, or rather, rather than stealing as spring, through him melt him, but master him still. Whether at once, as once at a crash, Paul, or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill, make mercy in all of us, out of us all, mastery. But be adored, but be adored, King. It's interesting that he uses that moment. I think he's referring to the moment when Paul's on the road to Eumaeus, remember, and he's struck by lightning. It's, it's the only time that I know that the Holy Spirit, for the most part, is very quiet. You know, he's reticent. He, he's, he solicits. It's, the Holy Spirit is very subtle. Um, this is the, one of the few moments I know where what he did was really violent. I mean, Paul was blinded, and, and Hopkins has acknowledged how important it is for so many of us to be struck. Um, but, and he's saying, but while that happens, make mercy in us all, out of us all, mastery, but be adored, but be adored king. Never to forget, he's at work doing something with us, whatever the suffering is. Let me leave it there, and we'll start the second part um, next time. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go over the, I'm not going to do a review.
we talked a little bit about Faulkner and his life. Um, I want you to remember that he had these drinking binges, that very often when he completed the work, he would, he would drink and go on these binges and, and then get back to work. And, um, the larger question, remember, hanging over the book is should Ike have sold, or should he have given away his inheritance? Should he have taken it and taken responsibility for it? Because by not doing that, by not receiving it, he passed it on to the Edmonds, and the question is whether the Edmonds were really virtuous enough to handle it well. That's the sort of overarching. And this question of form, Remember, remember this, it's one of the hardest things to grasp about literature. So many people read for theme. The psych psychological critics will read for the psychology of a character. The structural critics will read for the structure of the language. They don't meet. And both of them are saying that's what literature is about. Um, there's an action going on. Character doesn't explain it. Character is a part of it. It's a major part of it. But there's an action. And the character is a part of it. So we always have to see the character in terms of this action, this whole form. And we've seen right now that so much of this action is um, multi-leveled. That Faulkner is asking us to hold various levels of time together at the same time. It's almost like asking us to look at the world the way God does. Because remember, for God, there is no past, present, or future. For God, there is only is. Remember, we, if you didn't know that before, we cannot not know it after Dante. When you, when you remember, because God was always going back and doing things from our perspective in the past, but they weren't the past for him. God is. There is not a becoming as there in eternity as there, as there is for us. So in one sense, Faulkner is helping us to hold together different realms of time simultaneously and not get caught in a sequential cause and effect. Even though cause and effect is important, we can't ignore it, it's there. We, we, are, we are human creatures, we live in time. But he's also rendering these stories in ways that ask us to put things together in a different way. It's one of the most important things he did as a writer. So. Okay, I wanna just read a couple of things as a, as a setup for writer. Um, and do this. I can't remember the psalm. I know there are a number of psalms because I've heard them through the year and I, I found some of them, but I, I, I don't think I have them still yet. But, but let me give you this passage from Matthew. Um, this is Christ um, speaking to his disciples and saying this. It seems to me he's repeating, aware of a psalm, of a psalm that because Christ knows, I mean, he, he's the, he was the God who spoke to the prophets. Um, he knows the Psalms well. You know that periodically he's, whatever he's saying is rooted in scripture. Um, this is from Matthew 5, verse 45. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. We are, we are called to love our enemies. Um, so that we can be sons of the Father because the logic here? Because the Father loves everybody. Um, and he goes on to say, he causes his son 
to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even tax collectors do the same. There's those Psalms where he talks about rain falling on the good and the bad, you know. Because God is all love. Um, he, he, he clearly is a God of justice because he's, otherwise Christ wouldn't have come into the world. But um, he's a God of love asking us to love everybody, whatever the circumstances are. Uh, so that's, there are all sorts of scriptural passages that, that speak to that same point. But this is Maritan on a, um, um, in a section from a book called, um, I think it's um, The Existence and the Existent. Existence and the Existent. And in that chapter, he's talking about subjectivity, and he has these things to say. Now, this is abstract, but bear with me for a second. He says, um, The more we grow accustomed to the inner life, the better we decipher the astonishing and fluid multiplicity which is thus delivered to us. The more also we feel that it leaves us ignorant of the essence of our own self. Subjectivity as subjectivity is inconceptualizable. We, it's, it's, not, it's not susceptible to concepts, the inner life. I don't care what Floyd, Freud, Freud says. The inner life is too fluid and too mysterious. It's too obscure. It's too deep. If any of you have tried to look inside yourselves and looked at your emotions, and I'm assuming you know how difficult it is to get a hold of them. Emotions are terribly obscure. We are obscure to ourselves. The harder that we look into ourselves, the harder it is to find, you know, to get to the bottom of it. We can't. It doesn't render, it doesn't lend itself to con concepts because concepts are abstract. They rend they, they, they abstract from concrete things. If any of you have had dreams and you've looked at your dreams, you will know that even better because you'll look at your dreams and say, holy cow, where did that come from? That those things are inside of me? I mean, whatever wild things that take place in our dreams and in our rational thinking about them, at least I know for myself, we, we look back and we think, where is that in me? I mean, what's going on? What does that mean? Um, so, Subjectivity as subjectivity is inconceptualizable. It's an unknowable abyss. It is unknowable by the mode of notion, concept, or representation. How could it be otherwise since every reality known through a concept, a notion, or representation is known as object and not subject? To go into the life of a person is to step into that inside of that person and know him as a subject from his interior life. And if that's, if that's not clear, it seems to me all we have to do is look at our marriages, how hard it is to know each other inside that other person's self. We tend to, we tend to see each other as objects. And if there's any truth to the, to the call to become one, it means we have to learn to give ourselves to each other for that to happen, because we tend to distance ourselves from each other in concepts, notions. Um, this is the first point to which consideration as subjectivity as subjectivity draws our attention, and it's a point of capital importance. Subjectivity marks the frontier which separates the world of philosophy from the world of religion. Religion, you all know, means 
religare, retie. Religion means to recover our ties with God because they're broken. Religion means, if anything, it means going into the interior where we meet him. God is the knower of the hearts. He's the prover of the hearts. That's all the way through scripture. God probes the hearts. He's the only one who knows them as he does. Philosophy can't do that, neither can the sciences, because they tend to abstract from concrete reality. If the inner self is an abyss, I think it is, how can we know that through a concept? Can't be. Um, <coughs> to be known as object, to be known to others, to see oneself in the eyes of one's neighbor, and he says here, Sartre, the French philosopher, is right, is to be severed, one from, severed from oneself and wounded in one's identity. Because we will never know a person completely the way that person is. The only person to do that is God. So there's no way we can know another as object without wounding that person in some way. Always. We can make judgments and think we're absolutely right and make the wound worse. Because we think we know that person. Tell that to the other person. You know what that person's going to feel. He's going he's to get really indignant and angry. You think you know me? Um, <clears throat> To be known as object, to be known to others, to see oneself in the eyes of one's neighbor, is to be severed from oneself and wounded in one's identity. It's to be always unjustly known, whether the he whom they see condemns the I, or whether, as occurs more rarely, the he does honor to the I. A tribunal is a masquerade where the accused stands countered in a travesty of himself and delivers his acts to be weighed in the balance. I think he's thinking of Christ. When Christ was accused, what did he do? You're this, you're this, you're this, you're this, right? The Jews said this, the high priest said this, the Gentiles said this, Pilate said this, right? Every one of them. What did he do? He was silent. He was silent. How could he answer that? In a psychological argument? A tribunal is a masquerade where the accused stands accountered a in a travesty of himself and it delivers his acts to be weighed in the balance. The more the judges stray from the crude outward criteria with which they formally they center themselves and strive to take account of degrees of inner responsibility, the more they reveal the truth of him who they judge remains unknowable to human justice. Interrogated by such a tribunal, Jesus owed it to himself to remain silent. I am known to God. This is where I'm going. This is the, I am known to God. He knows all of me. Why do we go to confession? I mean, I, I'm assuming all of us do, or most of us do. We go to confession and we reveal something of a secret side to ourselves that the rest of the world does not know. Why don't we show that to the world? What would the world do with that, God's sake? But right? I mean, there's always something to us that the world doesn't know. I mean, in our marriages, I mean, hopefully we try to reveal as much as we can and trust, but I mean, there's a great risking there and a, and a great sharing. That's a, I mean, it's fraught with dangers, but that's what love calls us to. Um, we go to confession in the belief that God knows us that way. It's important for us to open ourselves to him. 
religare, to retie, to find our way with him again. I am known to God. He knows all of me as subject. I am present to him in my subjectivity itself. He has no need to objectize me in order to know me. Then, and in this unique instance, man is known not as object, but as subject in all the depth and all the recesses of subjectivity. Only God knows me in this wise. In him alone I am uncovered. I'm not uncovered to myself. The more I know of my subjectivity, the more it remains obscure to me. If I were not known to God, no one would know me. How important is our relationship with God? God. If I were not known to God, no one would know me. No one would know me in my truth, in my own existence. No one would know me, me, as subject. Okay? Now the reason I'm doing this, because <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get to this question, because poetry, particularly in the modern world, and somebody like Faulkner, is taking us into the interior of people. Faulkner never judges a character. Never. He puts Ryder out there, he puts the sheriff and his wife, they speak, and we know them. Now the thing I want to take from, away from this is this. There are only two ways of approach to knowing another as subject. One is poetry, and the other is mystical knowledge. Because you know in mystical knowledge, the whole point of mysticism is to learn to stirp away everything in the world until you come into union with the thing known. So this question that I started you know, with Faulkner with, do we find Christ in his writing? I wanted to push us past just looking at people, and I don't, I don't want to ignore them because we still have to say, you know, we find Christ in Lucas or Molly or you know, any of the characters. But I also want to look at poetry as poetry and what it's giving us. What do we take away from this reading? But particularly when it presents us problems in, in reading, when you find yourself in the middle of a sentence and going on, going on for a page and a half. <laughs> so I, I want to raise this question pretty seriously. Do, do we find Christ in the writing and in what he's doing? Um, in these stories, okay? So just, that's the overarching question. Okay, let's, let's take a look at Faulkner. I want to look at the two stories today, the um, black, or pantaloon in black. By the way, so I don't, because I'll forget if I don't do this now. I don't know if I showed this to you. You all know what the pantaloon is, yeah? From the Commedia? No. Art? You've all seen this before, haven't you? Should I pass this around? I'll pass it around. It's the pantaloon. But it's interesting here. It's pantaloon in black because he's in mourning. Yeah. The pantaloon is a clown figure. Commedia dell'arte, I think the French created it here. We're going to look tonight at pantaloon in black and in the old people. Um, both of them, to me, are extraordinary stories, just extraordinary. 
Um, you know that I'm always a little bit wary of talking in terms of themes, but it's something we have to do, so uh, it's one of the few ways we can really get at what's at the center of a work. So if I were to describe the, the, the theme of Pantaloon in Black, it would be something like this. That in Ryder, we have a story of um, a black man, a Negro. Um, and he's an image, he's an image of the, the modern black man who has uh, been brought to a point of isolation because of the loss of his wife. So he's a man isolated who no longer has the support of a marriage to help him. Right? He's lost his wife. He's a widower. And um, he doesn't have the support of religion. When his aunt and uncle try to offer help, he turns away. Um, his, wife, his, his aunt says to him, remember at the very end when she goes to the jail with him, she says, I tried to raise him well. Clearly she did. I, have a, I, I mean, the sense we have is that it's a Baptist religion, much like the um, religion we saw in Melville. But she obviously tried to do the best she could. She, when he visits her that night before, um, she says, turn to God. And, he's, and um, he can't, he won't. And she says, get down on your knees. She's pretty angry with him, then, and, and he leaves. So in Ryder, we have an image of the modern, isolated black man who no longer has the support of marriage or his faith. And in the absence of either of those, what he turns to is whiskey, drinking. Um, I, I mean, I would enlarge on that a little bit and say, I think that's, a, in one sense, it's an image of modern man isolated. It's not just the black. I mean, I think it's important to see this is an image of modern man. When you, when you take marriage away and faith, what do you have? Um, but I think we're also meant to feel that, that we can't ignore the race or minimize it. He is a black man, clearly, and his suffering is greater because he has nothing else on which to draw. He's looked down on um, by a white race. He's exploited. Um, there, he can find support nowhere. Nowhere. And I want to look at all of these things. But he's an image of a Negro who's been raised in a culture that looks at him as an inferior creature. So when he loses his wife, what has he got to turn to? So um, I think what Faulkner's done here is extraordinary. I mean, he's taken us inside a man that, and, and if you know the ending, you know what happens. I mean, the, the sheriff has nothing good to say. I mean, he said, what about these black people? I mean, they're not even human. If that's the culture in which you've grown up, and that's the image you have of yourself, what can you turn to? And, the, and what makes it so sad, I mean, it's a terribly sad story, it seems to me, at the very end, when the sheriff and the posse come to get him, remember, there, there's no razor blade, there's no shotgun, he's asleep on the porch. They take him to jail and he does everything he can to fight. And he says, I'm not trying to get away, I'm not trying to get away. He doesn't want to avoid responsibility, he just doesn't know what to do. So it's a, it's a, um, sad, sad story of, of the plight of, a, of, of modern man isolated without traditional supports. Okay, and that's what he's given us. 
that seems to me the major theme of that. Um, the, the other thing that I want to just mention here, and I, I, I think I want to wait until next week to go over it, but if you've been reading closely, you know that Faulkner almost never describes something physical without suggesting that there's some animate life to the physical nature around. It's the logos. I, I don't think Faulkner had that notion at all. I don't believe he had any notion of the logos as we understand it. I, I won't go into this tonight, but next week I'm going to read a lot of passages to put that together because it's just amazing. But he has, he has an ability to do something I don't think any other modern writer that I know of could do. It's almost as like, or, or even, even this way, remember there's that passage where Manny's gone into the earth. She's dead. One of the things a writer won't let go of is if she's in the earth, there's something sacred about the earth. The earth speaks. Why? Because all the dead we've ever loved are there. So this notion that nature is just this inert stuff couldn't be farther away from Faulkner's mind. He's constantly making us aware by his writing there's something there. When Ryder goes home, he and the dog see Manny. There's a glimpse of her, the ghost. You know, there, there's something. So Faulkner is amazing in this way. He's a modern. He writes under the tenets of naturalism. That is, you only show what the senses present. It's, it's the scientific modern world. It's what's called naturalism. And yet, the way he treats this naturalistic world always suggests there's something more going on. So I don't know what name to give that theme, but I've got to speak it. There is this sense of something in the earth, something of nature, um, and man is a part of it. It's part of his home. And Faulkner's way of describing it is unlike any other modern in the modern world. Hemingway doesn't get close. In, in uh, Old Man at the Sea he did, but... Um, so just keep that in mind, because um, next week I'm going to read, I'm just going to stop and read probably 10 passages just for you to get a sense of that, but that's really important. The great theme of the old people is, um, is along these same lines. Sam Fathers is an old Indian chief, you know, and he's Ike's mentor, he's his teacher. Um, the, the story's about Ike's first kill, he kills his first deer, and what has to be, almost, it's almost like a Catholic confirmation. Sam takes him to the deer, he, he reaches in for the blood and marks him. And in that moment, Ike feels absolved that he enters into some, some special relationship with nature by having taken the life of the deer. And then late in the story, you know that as they're breaking camp to leave that day, Boone Hagenbeck, who's, who's always, if you've been reading The Bear, you know, you know what a lovable guy he is. I mean, he's... Um, nobody can do anything but make fun of him. He's a um, um, wonderful, simple guy. Boone thinks he sees, sees this big stag and he wants to go back hunting. So they stop there while they're on their way out of the woods and they go back into the woods to hunt. And Ike sets up with Sam for this kill, even though he knows he's too far away from where the deer's going to be. And he's dis he, he has the discipline. Faulkner describes him have, as having the truculent. I can't remember of a, of a child having to deal with his disappointment. And then suddenly they hear the crack of Walter Ewell's rifle and they know that Walter Ewell never misses and Ike is um, crestfallen. He, he lost a chance to get this bill. And then Sam says, wait. And I don't want to go in, I want to read that because, so I don't want to go farther than that. But something happens in that moment that separates Ike from the rest of the hunters 
and gives him a heritage that none of the under, other hunters have. It's, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's poetry. But um, let's wait, because you may, you may want to disagree with me later when we get there. But let's take a look at um, Pendleton back in black. Those are the great themes, and both of them <coughs> focus on this theme of the land. Remember, that's that's the axis of everything here. This relationship between man and the land. And I think I said this before. Remember, there's two ways we have to view the land. The wilderness is God's. And this is what's really important. As God's, it speaks. There's something there. The land, when it becomes contracted, when men take it over to organize it, is mute. It doesn't speak. Something's wrong. When man begins to act like he's in possession of the land, that it's his, it changes the relationship between him and the land. So long as he's outside of that, something happens. There's something in the land. And Ike in the bear is learning that. It, it's also in the old people. Sam is teaching and there's something else there that he has to take care of. And the other hunters don't see it. Okay? So those themes, they all, they're all centered around this important relationship between man and the land. Pantaloons in black. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me stop before, because we're going to, I'm going to go get into these two stories now and try to get through them both um, tonight before we leave. But I just went through a lot. I mean, I read something from scripture. We did Hopkins and... And I read this passage from Maritan on subjectivity, and it's, you, you know it's all pointed in this direction of, of learning, and learning to enter into the self of another, how important that is. And you know, if you think about what I said when we began, insofar as this has a catechetical element to it, I take that seriously. Otherwise, this is just literature. And if you know, I mean, I would be teaching this if I were teaching at UD. I mean, I would be saying the same thing. Um, but here, the, to me, it's underlined. I mean, we've got a catechetical purpose here that we don't, I didn't, wouldn't have had at UD. But any questions about anything that we just, this notion of subjectivity and objectivity and poetry and what we're doing? Tracy, you look like you're wondering, like you've got questions swirling around. Do you? No. I understand it now, but tomorrow I probably won't. <laughs> you know, because it's just, it's just right there. I'm not sure what to say about that. Is that too much then? I mean, I hope it's not too much. You do understand it. Yeah. yeah. That means you have to come again next week. I know. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, let's look at pant pantaloons. Did you all see that picture of the pantaloon? Okay, you can all see the relevance to writer, that this is a fool, a clown, that he's this comic figure, and yet tragic in this comic identity he has in this world. Um, let's take a look at it. I want to read through some passages here and, and just go through it. Um, let me see if I can summarize this story very quickly. You know from the story that Ryder and Manny have been married for six months. But before that, he was a loose gadabout. 
I mean, all the women, it sounds to me like from Faulkner's description of him is that all the women in town did everything they could for him and he was just playing around with women. And then a day came when I guess he looked at Maddie in some other way that he'd never seen her before and he said, I'm done with that. I'm done with it. And they married six months, so they've only been married six months, and they, they rent land, they have land on the Edmonds, that's why they're here, they're on that land. And on the day of the marriage, he lit a fire, like Lucas, that's the, that's the convention for the Negro community there, and they've kept it lit every day since. So he identifies with that, that black sense of the importance of the hearth in marriage that is the center of the community. That's their center, that's their defining point. A week before this moment when the story opens, Manny died. So they're early in their marriage, um, and it's important because it's clear that when he married, it marked a change for him. He said, I'm done with that. I'm, he turned away from that way of living and entered into something special with her, and she's gone. And it opens with Ryder on the grave, piling dirt on. It's as if he can't stand still. He has to do something. The, the suffering so overwhelming that he has to be doing something. So the first, the opening image of the, of the story is piling dirt on the grave to get it done with. Um, and by the way, this is one of the passages that I would read, but I'm going to read it here just for you to have in mind the sort of thing I'm talking about. Listen to this and you'll hear the sense of the logos here. Um, the middle of the opening page. Let me have it, Ryder. He didn't even falter. He released one hand. One of the guys is trying to get him out of there. He's the grieved husband. They, they want him out and to calm down and let go of her. Let me have it, Ryder. He didn't even falter. He released one hand in mid-stroke and flung it backwards, striking the other across the chest, jolting him back a step, and restored the hand to its moving shovel, flinging the dirt with that effortless fury so that the mound seemed to be rising of its own volition, not built up from above, but thrusting visibly upward out of the earth itself, rising out of its own volition, as if the earth had a will, as if something coming out of it. Now, clearly, writers shoveling, but notice Wagner's description of it. It's just, it's a, it's a curious description that the mound seemed to be rising of its own volition, not up from above, but thrusting visibly upward out of the earth itself, until at last the grave, save for its rawness, resembled any other marked off without order about the barren plot of sh um, shards of pottery and broken bottles and old brick and other objects, insignificant to sight, but actually of a profound meaning and fatal to touch, which no white man could have read. Then he straightened up and with one hand flung the shovel, quivering upright in the mound like a javelin, and turned and began to walk away. The, um, the aunt tells him not to go back to the home, um, um, go down. I'm on page 132. The, the paragraph that begins, wait, writer, the other said, what page are you at? 130. 130, thanks. So, so you're two pages behind me. So I'll, um, Wait, Ryder, the other said, we've got some jug into bushes. Now, one of, the wheel, one of the millmen comes up and said, we've got some whiskey for you. Um, then the other said what he had not intended to say, what he never conceived of himself saying in circumstances like these, even though everybody knew it. The dead who, are either, who either will not or cannot quit the earth, yet although the flesh they once lived in has been returned to it, 
Let the preachers tell and reiterate and affirm how they left it not only without regret, but with joy mounting towards glory. You don't want Sturt to go back there. She walking yet. The, the, the guy just wants him to have a drink. I mean, clearly marriage conventions are operating. He didn't think to do that. He didn't plan he wouldn't have done it. But something about Ryder makes him make this offer. And then he says, you don't want, you don't want to go back there. She be walking yet. Um, he goes back um, on the next page, so it would be 131. You remember the description that he's walking over the dust of the August. Um, it says, the pale powder light, powder dry dust of August from which the long week's marks of hood and wheel had been blotted by the strolling and unhurried Sunday shoes with something beneath them vanished but not gone, fixed and held in the kneeling dust, the narrow splay-toed prints of his wife's bare feet where on Saturday afternoons she would walk. His go down, his body breasting the air, her body had vacated. I mean, it's, it's like she's there, present. You know, it's amazing what he's doing. Um, he can still feel her presence even though physically she's gone. His, his body breasting the air, her body had vacated. If you've defined your life by your husband or wife and they're suddenly gone, it's the way you're going to still define your life for a while. I mean, he, he defines himself by the um, air that she once occupied and now vacated. His eyes touching the object, post and tree and field and house and hill, her eyes had lost. He goes home, remember, there, there's descriptions um, of the background of the Edmonds um, farm, the land. He comes to the house and he sees the dog. This is about 130, I guess 133. Um, what's our doing here before he went on? Then he saw the dog. He had forgotten it. I needs a big dog. You the only least thing whatever have kept up with me one day, left alone for weeks. Coming out from beneath the gallery and approaching, not running, he goes into the house. Um, um, 134, then the dog left him. The light pressure went off his flank. He heard the click and hiss of its claws on the wooden floor as it surged away, and he thought at first that it was fleeing. But it stopped just outside the front door where he could see it now, and the up, and the up fling of its head as the howl began. Why is the dog howling? And then he saw her too. So clearly the dog is howling because he sees something. And, the, and one of the curious things is, why, why is it interesting? This happens, we know that when we hear things, of the, why, does the, why is the subhuman world more perceptive about these things than humans? Um, the uplifting of its head as it howl began, and then he saw her too. He was, she was standing in the kitchen door looking at him. He didn't move, he didn't breathe nor speak until he knew his voice would be all right. He had to control himself. Um, his face fixed to, not to alarm her. Manny, he said, he saw a rat, I ain't afraid. And he took a step towards her, slow, not even raising his hand yet, and stopped. Then he took another step. But this time, as soon as he moved, she began to fade. He stopped at once, not breathing again, motionless, willing his eyes to see that she had stopped too. He wants to do everything he can to hold her. But she'd not stopped. She was fading, going, wait, he said, talking as sweet as he had ever heard his voice speak to him and 
Then let me go with you, honey. But she was going. She was going fast now. He could actually feel between them the insuperable barrier of that very strength which could handle alone a log which would have taken any two other men to handle. And here it is again, that same sort of thing I was talking about, of the blood and bones and flesh too strong, invincible for life, having learned at least once with his own eyes how tough even in sudden and violent death, not a young man's bones and flesh perhaps, but the will of that bone and flesh to remain alive actually was. Over and over and over again, by the way, this would be so in accord with St. Thomas's world. Over and over and over again, Faulkner keeps describing the material world as if it has intentionality, as if it's got a will. Think something's there. Nature's not just inert. Um, not a young man's bones and flesh, perhaps, but the will of that bone and flesh to remain alive. Um, he, he goes um, to... Um, He spends the night wandering with his dog and then sets out very early in the morning for the mill again. When he comes there in the morning, he's the first one there. And he, um, he just stuffs food down himself. He's obviously starving. As the morning wears on, the men sing songs. He will not enter into the singing. Um, the, the, the uncle comes and says to him, this is about 138, he, he gives her food. He says, I went to the house last night, but you weren't there. She sought me. She wants you to come on home. She kept a lamp burning all night for you. I'm all right, he said. You ain't all right. The Lord give and took away. Put your faith and trust in him, and she can and she can help you. What faith and trust, he said. What Manny ever done to him, what he want to come messing with me. And so he's blaming God. I mean, the, the uncle is saying, trust in God, and he's saying, put faith and trust in him. Why? What did Manny ever do? He's so angry. He, he can't, he can't, he can't see through the anguish, the suffering that he's um, caught up in right now. Um, you, you remember that, I'm assuming you all remember the scene where um, he, after lunch he, he goes to that one log and takes up the log and, and he has everybody fixated to see if he can do it because it's a bigger log than he ever picked up before, and he takes it and turns and tosses it. It's like there's this superhuman strength in him that comes from his anguish. It's, it's like he cannot control himself. He's, he's got to do something to keep going. He can't deal with the pain. It's overwhelming him. And the white men are fascinated. This is the pantaloon in black. I mean, they're looking at him as this strange figure in mourning. Um, um, and after he does that, he walks away. Look out, white folks, he said. It's mine. I done paid you. He goes to this place to get whiskey and takes a gallon, pays the man the money, and the white man says, this is about 140. The white man cursed him. No, you ain't. Here's your money. Put that jug down, nigger. It's mine, he said, his voice quiet, gentle even, his face quiet, save for the rapid blinking of his eyes. I done paid for it, turning on, and he goes on. And you know that... Um, through the night, he continues to drink. And there's that one, 142, where he vomits. And Faulkner's description of it is amazing because he, he describes the, the whiskey coming out 
taking the mold from his mouth and then sprinkling in the moonlight. Is it, you know, is it, is it, I mean, it's, he makes it also real. And then he does it again and then does it again. This is about 142. All right, I'm going to try you again. Soon as you make up your mind to stay where I put you, I'll let you alone. He drank, filling his gullet for the third time and lowered the jug one instant ahead of the bright, intact repetition, panting and drawing the cool air until he could breathe. He stoppered the cob carefully back. One of the reasons we can get into this man's inner life is because Faulkner has taken such pains to describe every one of these little things to make it real. And, and we, we're, he's describing the liquor, and there's no way to see this without feeling the torment that he feels more deeply for all the pains that he describes to describe this vomit. The, he stoppered the cob carefully back into the jug and stood panting, blinking, the long cast of his solitary shadow slanting away across the hill and beyond across the mazy infinitude of the night-bound earth. All right, he said, I just misread the sign wrong. His modern critics. <laughs> Misreading literature. I just misread the sign wrong. It's done done me all the help I needs. I'm all right now. I don't needs no more of it. He goes to his aunt and she confronts him and um, she turns him to God again and um, he won't turn to him about this, about 143. Don't lie to me, she said. You ain't never lied to me. Don't lie to me now. Um, um, then he said it. It was his own voice without either grief or amazement speaking quietly out of the tremendous panting of his chest, which in a moment now would begin to strain at the walls of this room too, but he would be gone in a moment. No, ma'am, he said. It ain't done me no good. God can't help. And he can't, can't, Nothing help you but him. It is the, the, the liquor. Um, he, he's past that now. He, he, in, you know, the passage that I read a minute ago. Ask him. Told him about it. He wants to hear you and help you. If any God, I don't need to tell him. If any God, he already know it. All right? Here I is. Let him come down here and do me some good. On your knees, she cried. So he's, I mean, he's obviously that's a defiant statement. He doesn't mean that. She says, on your knees, and he leaves. Um, um, going over to 145, this is the moment when he returns to the mill, and there's an interesting line here. In the middle of that long paragraph, it says, the, the paragraph that begins, the jug was still in his hand when he entered the clearing. Middle of that paragraph, it says, but it was all right, and now he was moving. The jug gone now, and he didn't know the when or where of that either. He crossed the clearing and entered the boiler shed and went on through it, crossing the juncture, junctureless back loop of Times Trepan. I want to read that again. Something's happening right here. He, he's, he's gone to the mill. He's going to this place where they've been playing crap games for, for years. Same clearing that he's crossed all these times, but look at the way he describes it. The jug gone now, and he didn't know the when and the where of that either. He crossed the clearing and entered the boiler shed and went on through it, crossing the junctureless backdrop, back loop of Times Trepan to the door of the tool room, the faint glow of the lantern beyond the plank joints, the surge and fall of living shadow, the mutter of voices, the mute click and scutter of the <coughs> dice, 
his hand loud on the barred door, his voice loud to open it. It's me. I'm snake bit and bound to die. He entered the boiler shed and went on through it, crossing the junctureless back loop of time's trepan. Trepan means a snare. Um, it's like a snare. It's like he's entered something that forever is going to change his life. So it marks a different time. Something's happening now. He, and we know from his language that he said a couple of times, and he says it here, I'm snake bit and bound to die. And when they say, don't come in, he says, make room, climbers, make room. I'm snake bit and the peasant can't harm me. He's already dead. He has no fear of dying. Um, he's accepted his death. Nothing can harm him. What has he got to lose? Um, he tried drinking. It didn't help. He knows that. He's put it away. Um, You're drunk, the white man said. Get out of here. One of you niggers open the door and get him out of here. You know what happens then. Um, they throw the dice. The, the Birdwell um, boss, the boss of the gang, um, has two pairs of dice, and whenever the stakes are high, he, he rolls the, the loaded dice, and whenever he, had, whenever he has a small amount to lose, he will deliberately lose to make it seem like it's a fair game. Um, he man Ryder manages to get the good dice, and he's rolling them, um, and the, the other one of the other Negroes throws the dice back to him, and he says, let the bet lay. Um, this is about 146. I can pass even without missouts, but these here the other boys, until the white man's hand sprang open and the second pair of dice clattered onto the floor beside the first two, and the white man wrenched free and sprang up and back and reached the hand backward towards the pocket where the pistol was. You know that in that moment, Ryder takes out his razor and slashes his throat and kills him. So this is the story of a man grieving for the loss of his wife who really has no help from a marriage, no help from traditional religion as he understands it. He's lost and alone, um, tried to drink himself out of it and came to a point of realizing he's a good enough man to know it didn't help, it wouldn't help. And now he comes to this crap game as if he seems unafraid to break through these conventions behind which people have been hiding. Because the boss bird birdsong has been cheating these people forever, and um, Ryder crashes through that facade behind which everybody's been living. And then um, the sec the second section gets the um, the account of the sheriff to his wife. Um, in section two, it says after it was over, it didn't take long. They found the prisoner the following day hanging from the bell rope in a Negro schoolhouse about two miles from the sawmill. And the coroner pronounced his verdict at the hands of a person or persons unknown and surrendered. A, a couple of embarrassing things here. One is that we know that um, the sheriff is only doing as much as he can to make it seem as if he's doing his duty. Because repeated, he makes references to the fact that even the, He's got to be careful because he's only in office because the bird song voted for him. So he needs their support for him to be in the office that he holds. Um, 
But he says in about 147, them damn niggers, he said, I swear to God for you, it's a wonder we have as little trouble with them as we do. Because why? Because they ain't human. They look like a man and they walk on their hind legs like a man and they can talk and you can understand them. And you think they're understanding you, at least now and then. But when it comes to normal human feelings and sentiments of human beings, they might just as well be a damn herd of wild buffaloes. Now you take this one today. She has some harsh words for him. Um, I mean, interesting woman, it seems to me. She, she doesn't want to hear about this. She says, take him out of my kitchen anyway, you sheriff, sitting around that courthouse all day long, talking. It's no wonder two or three men can walk in and take prisoners out from under your very noses. They would take your chairs and desks and windowsills if you ever got your feet and backsides off of them that long. It's more than bird songs than just two or three, the deputy. <laughs> How ridiculous this is. There's 42 active votes in that connection. He's concerned about the power he will lose if he does anything to offend them. Um, he says, the deputy raised his voice a little to carry the increased distance. His wife dies on him? All right. But does he grieve? It's the biggest and busiest man on the funeral. Grabs a shovel. He can't make sense of it because everything writer does is outside conventions. And it's as if the conventions are the mark of what is really real in life, instead of just conventions. What writer's done is shatter those conventions. As a black man, he's broken through them everywhere in everything that he's done. Um, and the sheriff, and clearly most of the people here, live behind those conventions so he can make no sense of anything he does. And then he describes what happens. Um, I wish we had time to read it, but I, I know You've all read it. Um, it's all described in a negative way. He can make no sense of what happened. And then he goes to the house that night expecting resistance and they find him asleep and take him to jail with his aunt. And that night when they take him to jail, they take him upstairs and um, um, a, a chain gang comes in and um, Ryder tries to break out of the cell picks up the cot and slams it against it and then takes the gate and tears it out. And they, um, the sheriff wants all the um, um, this chain gang men to, to grab him. Um, this is the very end of the story. Um, he's describing what happens um, and writer's response to it. I ain't trying to get out. I ain't trying to get out until the last they pulled him down, a big mass of nigger heads and arms and legs boiling around the floor. And then Ketchum says every now and then a nigger would come flying out and go sailing through the air, go down. Um, Ketchum goes in and he starts peeling away niggers until he could see him laying there under the pile of them laughing with tears big as glass marbles running across his face and down past his ears and making a kind of popping sound on the floor like somebody dropping bird eggs, laughing and laughing and saying, it looked like I just can't quit thinking Look like I just can't quit. And what do you think of that? I think if you eat any supper in this house, you'll do it in the next five minutes, his wife said from the dining room. I'm going to clear this table and then I'm going to the picture show. What's stunning to this is he judges nobody. He doesn't judge writer. He doesn't judge the people. He lets, this is the tenet of modern realism. You don't tell, you show. 19th century fiction was tell. The narrator was there to tell everything that happened. Dickens held a hand. Austin describes a lot. You know. Here, you show. You render the scene um, and 
the responsibility then is put on the reader to figure out what's going on. So Faulkner never makes a judgment. He presents these characters and we're left to judge them ourselves. And here, it's pretty clear that the, that the indictment is of a white community. They have no sense of what's going on with this man. Faulkner has done everything he can to take us in. He's not a respectable person. Who's writer? He's a nobody. He's one of the chain gang, I mean, one of the mill workers, you know? He's not one of the respectable townspeople. Like so many of Faulkner's characters, He's an outcast. He's a middle class, lower middle class man struggling, newly married, trying to make his way, and suddenly his wife dies, and his life falls apart. Faulkner takes us into that life and allows us to experience it from within his life. Um, so if we come to any judgments, it's judgments we've got to come into from the way Faulkner has allowed us into his life. But to end the story, he sets against it the sheriff and his wife who can make no sense, who have nothing good to say, because clearly for them, he's an object. They, they're not privy to everything Faulkner's made us privy to. So we're left with this sense of this discrepancy between the black and white worlds um, and the failure to come together, to, to enter into the subject, the inner, inner life of another human being. Um, let me stop with that quickly because I, I don't want to, I want to, I want to just cover two things here to see if we can't pull these together. Turn to the old people, just, I want to do this very quickly to see if we can't make some connections between them. Um, you know that it begins with Sam Fathers, who is Ikimachubis, um, he, he belongs in the line of Indians, he was sold um, with other things. So, he, like a slave, he's grown up with this sense of being an inferior caste, um, even though he's been independent and lives pretty much the way he wants. But he's Ike's mentor. He's Ike's teacher. Here, Ike's killing his first buck. He's 12, and he's been waiting for this moment for years. The very first page. Then the buck was there, he did not come into sight, he was just there, looking not like a ghost, but as if all light were condensed. There it is. There's that sense. There's something in nature. Faulkner catches with language that no, he, the word, Christ is the word. He's using words to make us aware of things in nature that other artists don't. Then the buck was there. He did not come into sight. He was just there, looking not like a ghost, but as if, as if all of light were condensed in him and he were the source of it, not only moving in it, but disseminating it, already running, seeing a materialist would just see a deer. Wagner's describing something that's more than just its matter. There's a spirit. The Indians will call it the great spirit. That's what Sam will call it later the great spirit of the deer, because the Indians were aware that there was some spirit in all living things. Already running, seen first as you always see the deer, in a split second after he's already seen you, already slanting away in that first soaring bound, the antlers even in that dim light, looking like a small rocking chair balanced on his head. Now, Sam Father said, shoot quick and slow. The boy did not remember that shot at all. He would live to be 80 as his father, so we know when I died, that's 
past the 1940, I think it's 1946, it's beyond the scope of the book, as his father and brother's twin brother and their father in his turn had lived to be, but he would never hear that shot nor remember even the shock of the gun, but he didn't even remember what he did with the gun afterwards. He was running. Sam says, don't walk up to him in front. If he ain't dead, he will cut you all to pieces with his feet. Walk up to him from behind, take him by the horn first so you can hold his head down until you can jump away, then slip your other hand down and hook your fingers into his nostrils. The boy did that, drew the head back and the throat taut and drew Sam Father's knife across the throat. And Sam stooped and dipped his hands in the hot smoking blood and wiped them back and <coughs> forth across the boy's face. Then Sam's horn rang in the very wet gray woods and again and again there was a boiling wave of dogs about them with Tenny <coughs> Jim and Boone Hogback. By the way, we saw this in the epic. This is the epic catalog. If you remember the epics, the, they would always give a catalog of things and this is it. And the epithets, remember the epic epithets? And one of the important ones here is, um, what's his name, um, who never misses, Walter Ewald. Who never misses. There's that epic epithet. It's <coughs> Boone Hagenbeck whipping them after each other um, after they had a taste of the blood. Then the men, the true, the true hunters, Walt, Walter Ewell, whose rifle never missed, Major Despain and old General Luke Compson and the boy's cousin, McCaslin Edmonds, grandson of his father's sister, 16 years his senior, and since both he and McCaslin were only children and the boy's father had been nearing 70 when he was born, more his brother than his cousin, and more his father than either, sitting their horses and looking down at them, and you know that they ask how he did. Notice all those epithets, that they identify them by their lineage. That's exactly out of Homer, because if, if those of you who did, you remember, we could never be introduced to a, a character in Homer without getting his, his patronage. Is that the word, patronage? The, the, the father's line and... Hmm? Yeah. Um, they were... They were the white boy marked forever an old dark man sired on both sides by savage kings who had marked him whose bloody hands had merely formally consecrated him to that which under the man's tutelage he had already accepted humbly and joyfully with abnegation and with pride too. The hands that touched the first worthy blood which he had been found at last worthy to draw joining him and the man forever so that the man would continue to live past the boy 70 years and then 80 years long after the man himself had entered the earth as chiefs and kings. Um, I, I, I don't want to go into the rest because we don't have time, but you know that, that Faulkner goes into the past of Sam and Edmonds and, um, and the teaching that, that Sam did and what he did. Going over to 164, the, para the paragraph I've got starts, he taught the boy the woods to hunt. What page is that? 162? He taught the boy the woods to hunt. Huh? 162? He taught the boy the woods to hunt, when to shoot, when not to, when to kill, um, go down. The boy would never question him. Sam did not react to questions. The boy would just wait and listen, and Sam would begin talking about the old days and the people whom he had not had time ever to know and so could not remember. He did not remember even having seen his father's face and in place of whom the other race into which his blood had run supplied him with no substitute. And as he talked about those old times and those dead and vanished men of another race from either that the boy knew 
gradually to the boy, those old times would cease to be old times and would become part of the boy's present. Not only as if they had happened yesterday, but as if they were still happening. The men who walked through them actually walking in breath and air and casting an actual shadow. That's poetry. Remember Dante, when Dante began to ascend purgatory? If you remember, he looked at the side of the mountain. Remember the goads and checks on the floor in the mountain? And he said they were all living. And it's this, it, it was Dante's way of showing the living presence of art, how important it is that it speaks to us, what it has to reveal to us. Sam is teaching Ike to read the world in a different way because none of the other hunters will see this. We'll see this in just a moment. Um, I want to turn to the end just quickly. They're, they're breaking camp and they're going out on page 170. <coughs> Boone suddenly shouts. <laughs> Boone is so good. Um, if, you've, if you started reading The Bear, you know, you know how lovable he is. He wants to sleep with Lion. He becomes so attached to the dog. Um, get the dogs, Boone cried. Get the dogs. If he had a nub at his head, he had 14 points. So Boone saw this enormous deer, and it was worth breaking camp. And everybody knows how stupid it is. Um, if, if I'd known he was there, I could have cut his throat with my pocket knife. Maybe that's why I run, Walter said. He saw you never had your gun. <laughs> because they know, that he's saying, the animals know that if Boone has a gun, they're safe. Because <laughs> Boone never hits what he shoots at. So, I mean, they, they, they never have good things to say about him. All they do is make fun. Um, there's that also that line about you can't get far enough downwind from Boom because he never takes a shower. He smells so bad. Um, go on over. I, I want to finish this now because this is the end of it. Um, this is about, I guess, 173. They all break camp and a number of them go together and then Sam and Ike are left alone while Walter, Ewell, and the others go off to this ridge. And Ike knows that from what Sam has taught him that the deer is going to be taking that track. So the chances of, of his getting the shot, because he's a kid, Walter Ewell obviously is going to want this, particularly if what Boone said is right, it had 14 points. Um, remember that at the end. They're there undercover, and then, um, and then they hear um, the, the horn and um, they know that um, Walter E. will never miss us. Um, 173. 173. Hush, oh. Sam said, so he hushed. But he could not stop the shaking. He did not try because he knew it would go away when he needed the steadiness. Had not Sam Fathers already consecrated and absolved him from weakness and regret too, not from love and pity, for all which lived and ran and then ceased to live in a second in the very midst of splendor and speed, but from weakness and regret. So they stood motionless, breathing deep. If there had been any sun, it would be near to setting now. Here's another one of these passages. There was a condensing, a densifying of what he had thought was the gray and unchanging light until he realized suddenly that it was his own breathing, his heart, his blood, something, all things, and that Sam Fathers had marked him indeed, not as a mere hunter, but with something Sam had had in his turn of his vanished and forgotten people. It's as if he's one with nature breathing with it. That there is this kind of union. This is going to become really important in the bear 
I don't want to give this away, but something happens in the bear that to me is one of the most extraordinary moments in all the literature. Um, I don't want to give it away, but it, this is preparing for it. He stopped breathing then. There was only his heart, his blood, and in the following silence the wilderness ceased to breathe also, leaning, stooping overhead with its breath held, tremendous and impartial and waiting. He's one with nature. They're in accord. We're not estranged from nature in this world, which is the modern world. He's one with it. Sam has helped him to do it, to stand the way the Indians did with nature. Then the shaking stopped too, as he had known it would. He drew back the two heavy hammers of the gun, and then it passed. It was over. The solitude did not breathe again, yet it had merely stopped watching him and was looking somewhere else even turning its back on him, looking away up the ridge at another point. It's amazing that nature has this character to it. And they're one with the hunters. Um, but the solitude did not breathe again. It should have suspired again then, but it did not. It was still facing, watching what had been watching, and it was not there, not where he and Sam stood. Rigid, not breathing himself, he thought, cried, no, no knowing already that it was too late, thinking with the old despair of two and three years ago, I'll never get a shot. Then he heard it, the flat single clap of Walter Ewell's rifle, which never missed. Then the mellow sound of the horn came down the ridge, and something went out of him, and he knew then he had never expected to get the shot at all. I reckon that's it, he said. Walter's got him. He raised the gun slightly without knowing it. He lowered it again and lowered one of the hammers, he was already moving out of the thicket when Sam spoke. Wait. Wait, the boy cried. And he would remember that, how he turned upon Sam in the truculence of a boy's grief over the missed opportunity, the missed luck. What for? Don't you hear that horn? You can hear the whine. And he's just as angry and pouting. Um, he would remember how Sam was standing. This is stunning. Sam had not moved. He was not tall, squat rather than broad, and the boy had been growing fast for the past year or so, and there was not much difference between them in height. Yet Sam was looking over the boy's head and up the ridge, go down. Then the boy saw the buck. Notice the, the writing. It was coming down the ridge as if it were walking out of the very sound of the horn which related its death. It was not running. It was walking, tremendous, unhurried, slanting and tilting its head to pass the antlers, go down, and it saw them, and still it did not begin to run. It just stopped for an instant, taller than any man, looking at them. Then its muscles suppled, gathered. It did not even alter its course, not fleeing, not even running, just moving with that winged and effortless ease with which deer move, passing within 20 feet of them, its head high, and the eye not proud and not haughty, but just full and wild and unafraid. And Sam standing beside the boy now, his right arm raised at full length, palm outward speaking in that tongue which the boy had learned from listening to him and Joe Baker in the blacksmith shop, while up the ridge Walter Ewald's horn was still blowing them to a dead buck. Ole, chief, Sam said, grandfather. When they reached Walter, he was standing with his back towards them, quite still, bemused almost, looking down at his feet. He didn't look up at all. 
Come here, Sam, he said quietly. When they reached him, he still did not look up, standing above a little spike buck. This is not 14 points, the way boots, a little spike. Um, a little spike buck, which had still been a fawn last spring. He was so little, I pretty nearly let him go, Walter said. But just look at the track he was making. It's pretty near big as a cow's. If there was any more tracks here besides the one he's laying in, I would swear there was another buck here that I never even saw. Now, what's just happened? Carl, what's just happened? The big buck working with was there. But Walter wasn't connected to nature. He couldn't see it. He shot the little one. I, I don't... I, Terry, or, I'm sorry, did you... Anybody else? I, I don't think there are two bugs. Well, wait. I think there's only a little one. But the, the irony in the way that he presents it for Walter to say, if you saw these tracks, I would swear there's, there is another. Do the hunters see what Sam saw and Ike? They, oh, you think it's just what Ike was able to see in the same being? Safe starts sort of. So I was able to see maybe even the spirit of the deer after it was killed, or he was able to see in the right. same physical thing something deeper and different. Right. So, but it was still the same thing. Right. Yeah. Except what what I saw with Sam's help was the spirit of the deer, larger, <laughs> mythic. Yeah. That the Indians would see that they know that there's something there besides. Moderns are empiricists. I mean, they're in their senses. What what Sam has been teaching Ike to do is to be more one with nature, so he has the sense of reverence, of care, the, the words, you know, consecrated, um, consecrated, absolved him from weakness. And, um, but what's wonderful is the way that Faulkner presents this, because to the hunters, Walter Ewell, you know, or he says, if there were any more tracks here besides the ones he's laying in, I would swear there was an, I mean, that's such a set-up line, you know, it, that there's only that deer, but what Sam helped Ike to see was the spirit of the deer coming out of the blast of the horn. And the way that the deer stopped and looked at him, you, we've got this image of this magnificent mythic image of the life of the deer. So that Ica's learning to see something these other hunters are not. Um, it's, it's done well. The, the story ends with, with Kaz and Ike going over the moment and, and um, Kaz questioning Ike um, and Ike insisting that he saw the deer, I mean the spirit of the deer, and that it ends with um, Kaz saying, we want them, we want them too, there's plenty of room for us and them too, that's right, McCasland, suppose they don't have substance, can't cast a shadow, but I saw it, the boy cried, I saw it, steady, McCasland said, for an instant, his hand touched the boy's flank beneath the cover, steady, I know you did, so did I. Sam took me in there once after I killed my first deer. Now here's the interesting question this story leads us with. If Cass saw that, if he saw the spirit of the deer, did he go on in the way that he lived his life carrying whatever burden that placed on him to live his life differently? It would be a little bit like seeing Christ or something and you know, like a disciple and then wondering two people who received him, and the question is whether they go on to 
live in, whether Kaz and everything he did with the property and the land once he took it was, um, bore the fruit of what Sam taught him and whether Ike did. So here early on, we're shown that Ike as a boy learned to stand in nature in a very different way from all the other white men, from all the hunters. Um, let me stop here. Any questions about this story? I want to I want to see if we can't take a second. We've got to leave, but a second to just any questions about this story and how important Sam Fathers is for Sam or for Ike's education, what he's teaching this boy to see. How many how many boys grew up with an education like this? I mean, if you read the bear, you know in from the bear because it really goes through everything that Sam did year by year by year to and then Finally, what happens to try to catch old Ben the bear and, and everything that happens to Ike that, that even adds to what just happened in this story when he's 12 years old. Um, but any questions about any of this? About well, I can relate to your story about a, about a bear and what some guy did. <laughs> Wait one minute. <laughs> Two, just one thing I want you to at least hold on. In, in the story of Ryder, we've got an isolated individual, a black man, a, a Negro, who is, who is looked at as subhuman in his world. So the sheriff said they aren't even human, it's like they're animals. And that's the way the sheriff perceives him. And what we see in Ryder from the inside is, is the terrible burden this man has to bear when he has nothing to turn to when his wife dies. I mean, um, I, we, we all know people, or, or even know it from first-hand experiences, when we lose somebody we love, how overwhelming that can be. Um, so in the story of Ryder, Faulkner takes us into the grief of a black man who's absolutely isolated from his community in that loss. In old people, we have a story of Ike who in some ways is becoming isolated himself, but in a very, very different way. He's being taught to see things in nature in ways none of the other hunters see. Those hunters are out for trophies. They want to hang those, their trophies there in the cabin or take them home or have them eat. Um, something else is happening with Ike, and he's, he's coming to something only Sam Fathers, who is an Indian, could teach him. So he's carrying something of the past forward that these other men don't carry. And it's changing the way he sees things. He can, he can see, I mean, I thought the way, um, Tracy, the way you put it was really good. It's like there's something more there, larger mythic, more there than the others see. And Ike does, and we did. We did. Because if you look at that description, I mean, we've been doing this all along, that poetry is showing us these things, that that wonderful description you know, when the, when the bear, when, we, when they hear the Walter Ewald's horn, do you remember? Um, and, and then Faulkner describes the bear, I mean, sorry, the deer. Um, then it saw them and still did not begin to run. It just stopped for an instant, taller than any man. Looking, this is a, a little buck. It's not. It's got what? Two. Walter said it had 14 points. It's a little. It's a little thing. Um, it just stopped for an instant, taller than any man. Looking at them, then its muscles supple, gathered. I mean, it's so real. You know, it's it's like it's like a physical thing. It has that kind of reality. 
did not even alter its course, not fleeing, not even running, just moving with that winged and effortless ease with which deer move, passing within 20 feet of them, its head high and the eye not proud and not haughty, but just full and wild and unafraid. And Sam standing beside the boy now with his right up going, Ole Chief Grandfather. We see this extraordinary figure, this image. Ike has seen it. We've seen it. So Faulkner is taking us into an aspect of the world that is true to what our senses see and showing something else as well. So in both stories, in both stories. So. Any questions before we break up for the evening? Candy, where are you in this? How are you guys finding Faulkner? Did you say difficult? Yeah. I hope this is helping. Yes, it helps a lot. It gives me, it gives me like a central thought to carry through. I'm going to go back and read some of this because I don't want to just get everything that you tell us. I just don't think that at all. And perhaps it's just. But you're seeing it when we go through it in class. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to go back and read this now, you'd find it really easy. Well, it explains. We, we, just, we just got through this Easter season with this doubting Thomas. I'll believe it when I see the holes and I put my fingers in them. Now it explains for me, Bob, what when I was a kid, my we, my dad and I were called out to pick up a, a fellow who was uh, climbing a fence across the Pennsylvania Turnpike. We were shocked from across the way. When we got up there to pick up the, the fellow who was shot, who was, who was killed, uh, the police were questioning the fellow who shot him. He had shot him illegally. First.